This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to the Bite Size Bio Web Seminar, which today is sponsored by Kyogen. Kyogen, another stakeholding company, is the leading global provider of sampled insight solutions to transform biological materials into valuable molecular insights. Kyogen sample technologies isolate process DNA, RNA, and proteins from blood, tissue, and other materials. Assay technologies make these biomolecules visible and ready for analysis. Bioinformatics software knowledge bases interpret data to report relevant, actionable insights. Automation solutions tie these together in seamless and cost-effective molecular testing workflows. Kyogen provides these workflows to more than 500,000 customers around the world in molecular diagnostics, human healthcare, applied testing, forensics, veterinary testing, and food safety, pharma, pharmaceutical biotechnology companies, and academia, life sciences research. Today's presentation is titled, All About MicroRNAs, Practical Tips, Advice, and Applications, and is being presented by Dr. Brian Adams from Beth Israel Deaconess and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Adams' goal is to investigate the inescapable influence of non-coding RNAs in breast cancer. Dr. Adams completed his graduate studies at the University of Connecticut Health Center, where he was the first to identify that microRNAs are crucial regulators of hormone responsiveness in breast cancer. He completed his postdoctoral studies at Yale, where he investigated how microRNAs can serve as chemosensitizers in the context of normal hematopoietic recovery in acute myeloid leukemia. Dr. Adams' recent work highlights the roles of MIR-34A as a therapeutic entity in triple negative breast cancer, and how MIR-125B can serve as a radiosensitizer across breast cancer lines. He's also developing microRNA biomarker profiles for triple negative breast cancer and triple negative breast cancer related indications. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Brian at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly slash miRNA webinar, all lowercase, within the next 24 hours. So now over to you, Brian. Okay, well, thank you very much for that introduction, and thank you to Bite Size Bio for inviting me to give uh, another webinar, and to Kaijin for um, sponsoring this. Um, so I've given webinars uh, before um, about microRNAs, and um, more in the sense of how you would uh, study microRNAs uh, and sort of circulation and using them as um, or, or usually the tools to identify circulating biomarkers, uh, microRNAs. Um, today, I think what I was going to really do is just, as the title suggests, kind of go over some of the basics in the microRNA field, some tips and advice about how you would go about studying a particular microRNA, or if you had a particular gene of interest and you wanted to understand if a microRNA was regulating your gene or involved in some of or function or phenotype in cell culture or in vivo, that maybe we can kind of discuss that today and then um, blend in some of the research that um, I've done in the past and, 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 and working on in the future. So um, just as a background again, I think we know from essentially over the past decade or 
more than a decade now that non-coding RNAs, specifically microRNAs, can function as master regulators of gene expression. It was actually a really exciting time when I was in graduate school um, back in 2005 and six, seven, when essentially everybody was understanding how uh, there was almost a, basically a new microRNA every day that was kind of coming out, uh, having some regulatory function in some biological process. Um, what's even cooler, I think, is that um, if you look at the timeline from when microRNAs were first discovered back in 93 with Victor Ambrose in the C. elegans system, and then in 2000 with LET7, and uh, that it was basically discovered both in worm and in humans, there's basically been an explosion, I think, of, um, first of all, identifying microRNAs that are involved in a particular process but also the development of therapies um, or potential therapies uh, to knock down or in some cases uh, overexpress a particular microRNA. And that's really important because um, we know that microRNAs are important for normal cellular function and that they can be dysregulated in disease states, um, notably in cancer. But in fact, a lot of the first uh, inhibitor strategies to, to block microRNA function really came out of work in the cardiovascular system and some of um, uh, some other systems as well. Um, and I'm just showing in this graph here toward the latter half of the last decade and into this decade, we are essentially utilizing new uh, chemistries that involve LNAs and other anti-mere strategies. Um, and some of these are um, now making their ways into the clinic it's phase one trials, and there are other companies that are developing molecules that are in preclinical phase. And so essentially, I think there's been a rebirth now of interest in determining whether or not a, a particular microRNA could have some therapeutic value in a particular disease um, or for a particular indication. A little bit about my own work, um, I've predominantly focused in uh, on breast cancer. Um, currently, I'm working in triple negative breast cancer. And essentially, um, in, in, in triple negative breast cancer, it probably counts about 15 to 20% of all breast cancer cases. Um, you can see here uh, to the graph on, on the right here that there are essentially different subtypes of breast cancer. And that basal-like which is almost synonymous with triple negative breast cancer, um, those patients have some of the worst probability or overall survival. Um, and so essentially what's happening there is that the disease itself is a very um, aggressive disease. Uh, but the challenge there is that um, there's really no good clinical uh, markers to define triple negative at this time. So they lack these cells basically lack estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2. The importance there is that um, breast cancers that express hormone receptors can respond to anti-hormone therapy like uh, tamoxifen. And those patients that are HER2 positive can um, respond to something like Herceptin. So after surgery, patients are usually left with chemo or radiation therapy or some combination. And then the challenge is that patients will respond, but of course, they 
usually relapse. And so really, it's a disease of relapse. And we kind of have to figure out what's going on there to treat that disease. And there's been a lot of clinical trials in triple negative breast cancer. And there's a lot of challenges here. And I'm I'm very much oversimplifying the problem in in the field. This is just really to state that there have been many drugs that have been developed to try to block um, or inhibit uh, triple negative breast cancer cell growth. Uh, these cells are really resilient. There's many explanations for why these tumors persist after um, being treated with these drugs. Um, and so a lot of it could be a lot of crosstalk. But for me, I think the cool thing is. Um, maybe not focusing so much on t- developing a one drug to one target approach, but utilize uh, some other approaches. And um, I think microRNAs are going to be one way to do this because microRNAs themselves um, can regulate many different genes at one time. Um, so they're kind of pleiotropic actors. Um, so because of that research and research, obviously, by many other investigators. Um, there's been an enormous effort to profile microRNAs, and this is usually where a lot of uh, investigators enter into the microRNA field. You know, they have um, different cell lines, or they have tumor versus normal. They may have some um, um, uh, uh, circulating uh, bio. Uh, source like a blood or serum, and they may just want to understand if certain microRNAs can act as uh, or serve as a biomarker for some, some disease state. And so that's really what people are trying to do when, they, when they're profiling for microRNAs. They're trying to find new biomarkers, maybe a new therapeutic target, but also, you know, to the, to the biologist, you know, they may just want to understand what is going on functionally with those particular RNA species. And, um, maybe uncover some uh, biology that's not well understood within their particular system. And so um, what usually happens is you get some kind of data that looks like this, this panel off to the right, where essentially, uh, in this case, we profiled a bunch of microRNAs um, from using uh, microarray data. And uh, you, you, you just do some computational um, manipulations, I guess, and analysis, and then what you what's being shown here is essentially the top fifty most differentially regulated microRNAs across these panel of lines, and they're essentially clustered based on whether they're basal-like, which is sort of synonymous with triple negative breast cancer, and the luminal-like, which is more reflective of a ER-positive breast cancer type, and what's just being what you can kind of appreciate is that there are microRNAs that are differentially expressed between these two cell types. And that's important because those two different cell types, if the phenotypes are the same in human, you treat those patients differently. So what's interesting is that, and I'm probably going to be talking about a little bit later in the talk, is that MIR-34 is one of these microRNAs that essentially is lowly expressed or more lowly expressed in basal-like cells compared to luminal. Um, but it's not just in cancer that microRNAs are important. Um, there many other diseases um, can have this sort of notable dysregulation of microRNA expression, 
again, in the cardiac system, uh, uh, cardiac hypertrophy, there's been a number of microRNAs that have been associated with um, that, that disease, uh, Alzheimer's, rheumatoid arthritis, um, and, and this is a not a comprehensive list. I'm pretty sure almost every microRNA at some level can be found to be differentially expressed between a normal state versus a disease state. So this is just a table showing that we don't always necessarily have to focus on cancer, but um, that in, in any system you work in, uh, microRNAs are probably going to be key players. Um, and then I just had to make a special note about this topic, which is microRNAs as circulating biomarkers, because again, there's sort of been a resurgence in this field as well. So this is just to note that um, there is RNA present in uh, liquid biopsies. Um, most well studied, of course, are microRNAs for a lot of different reasons, uh, predominantly because microRNAs are more well studied. They were the first non-coding RNAs really to be discovered that had some function. But interestingly, what we found out over time is that microRNAs are very stable in circulation. They're resistant to RNAs. Um, that means they can survive extended storage, uh, multiple freeze thaws. If you have something like serum just stored in a minus 80 freezer, it could be that that microRNA entity could still be present from something that's 20 years old or something like that. Um, and it's been shown that these microRNAs are, again, in, 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 this, in the serum or in plasma or in other fluids, that the levels are altered in disease state versus a, a normal state, I guess. Um, a good example of this is um, not any particular microRNA. There's a, there's a panel of microRNAs, but um, they, these microRNAs essentially could be better predictors of certain diseases like ovarian cancer. And, and the benefit, again, to a microRNA is that it could be better predictors of things uh, compared to what's out there, compared to the standard, right? So we all know that something like C-reactive protein is kind of a poor marker. I mean, it's a marker of inflammation, but unfortunately the tissue is already damaged and things are already happening. You'd want to identify a marker that can tell you that something is going on way before the disease is to a point where you're just sort of treating the symptoms. Um, a good example also uh, is um, using microRNAs and comparing it to something like CA125, which in ovarian cancer, we all know, has a you know kind of average to poor sensitivity of picking up or detecting ovarian cancer. But it, um, in this particular study by Resnick et al., there have been some microRNAs that you can always find consistently elevated in the patients of ovarian cancer, even though they have normal CA125 levels. So it takes a lot of work, um, but I think, you, you know, microRNAs do have this potential um, to serve as good biomarkers. And this is just a table showing some canonical microRNAs that we know, for instance, LET7 is a tumor suppressor uh, in lung and breast and many other solid uh, tumor systems. And then if you look in the serum, you can also see that in most cases, there's always a little discrepancy, but you can you can find it um, um, in certain in certain states uh, downregulated when patients are being uh, basically when patients are, are, are having 
lung cancer compared to a normal state. Another good one, you know, is MIR-21. That, that's a micronate that seems to be uh, very oncogenic. Um, if you just take a, a biopsy from a tumor specimen compared to normal, usually you will always find that that microRNA will be overexpressed, um, and it clearly associates with decreased overall survival. Um, but then if you look in the serum, you know, again, you do find it highly expressed in breast cancer patients compared to normal, highly expressed in ovarian cancer patients. Um, so, you know, I think it's just eventually what will have to happen is at some point when enough of these studies are done and they're done in a controlled enough manner, probably some meta-analysis has to happen. So we can just kind of eventually weed out some of this that noise a little bit. And I think you'll find the true uh, biomarkers for that particular disease. So um, it's just also uh, a little frustrating in this particular space, only in the sense that micronates are very dynamically changing entities, I guess you can say. They're, so um, a lot of things can cause microRNAs to be differentially expressed even in normal patients. And so I think that's where I'm kind of bringing up this issue of proper controls and, and running your experiments and that um, more a little more carefully on that regard rather than just taking some randomly healthy patients because the variation there may swap out your effect in your disease state. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, so that's why microRNAs are cool and important and why everybody wants to study them. Um, I haven't really mentioned what microRNAs are. Uh, again, I try to make this a balance between a more advanced talk but a more uh, introductory talk for those who may want to get into the field of microRNAs. So um, I've kind of already mentioned this, what microRNAs are. They are regulators of survival and proliferation pathways. They're very important in normal development, and they essentially dampen a lot of cell signaling networks, and they do this in a cell context-dependent manner because essentially they're operating in feedback loops. They're regulating transcription factors, and those transcription factors are obviously regulating a host of other genes. But those transcription factors can feed back and regulate microRNAs. So they're kind of in this unique little network, if you will. Um, we hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. So where they come from, microRNAs themselves are transcribed from individual gene loci. They can have their own promoters. So they can be intergenic, or they can be intragenic. So they can be in an intron of a host gene. Um, and and, and uh, when they're transcribed, they make a primary microRNA transcript. And that primary microRNA transcript can be just have, have one cistron, so it just has one microRNA hairpin, or it can be polycistronic, so something like a a mere 17 cluster. There's many microRNAs that come off of one primary microRNA transcript. Um, so that's what we mean by polycystronic. But essentially, the way microRNAs work is that they are processed by RNAs3 enzymes that are present in our own cells. So Drosha recognizes, and, and Pasha basically recognizes hairpin structure, cleave it, form a pre-microRNA that gets exported into the cytoplasm, and then essentially another family of uh, RNAs3 enzymes, at least in this case, Dicer, 
recognizes this loop here, cleaves that, and then you end up with a duplexed RNA. There's selective loading of this duplex into the risk complex. So one strand is selected, um, and it has to do with the instability, I guess, of the five prime end of the microRNA duplex. If this, I try to show it here, where if this strand has a free five prime end, uh, this gets loaded into the risk complex. This this one strand, um, and so this uh, essentially what this microRNA does is it serves as a guide and it recruits risk to target uh, mRNAs predominantly in the 3' UTR region of a coding gene, but could also bind in other regions as well. And what it does is it is recruiting risk at this RNA-induced silencing complex, which comprises AGO. And some say that you have to have, if you have perfect complementarity, you have slicing activity. If there's a bulge, then in this sort of Watson and Crick base pairing, then you just have stalling and uh, translational repression. Um, you know, it could also be that if different family, uh, different argonaut proteins are involved in risk, then you could maybe get differential uh, effects of microRNA activity. I think that's still a little not clear. Um, but I, the other point I wanted to make is that essentially, as of right now, at least what's reported in Mirabase, if it hasn't been updated, I think there's still about uh, 1,800 microRNA precursor genes. And again, some of those are polycystronic. So there's about 2,500 mature microRNA sequences. And really, over the past decade, we've probably been studying just 100 or, or so, 200, really well. So there's a you know, plethora of microRNAs out there that could be important in anybody's system. And then... I alluded to this a little earlier. This is exact. This is kind of how microRNAs operate. You know, they they are functioning by regulating important uh, processes in the cell by regulating certain target genes, and then essentially, in this case, what I'm showing here is MIR34. When let's say this microRNA is lost, then you can have re-expression or aberrant expression of cell cyclin genes, um, markers of stemness like CD44. Um, BCL2, MYC, these, uh, these kind of factors that are important in growth and survival. And then even, it's been known by, by for a couple of years now, even by some other groups, that MIR34 inhibits PDL1. So essentially, this starts evoking this notion of microRNAs controlling immune responses. But essentially, it's the loss of tumor suppressive microRNAs that then kind of allow for these oncogenic, quote-unquote, genes to be apparently expressed and kind of promote a tumor state or maybe some other disease state, depending on what genes are being regulated. But you can imagine that if there was a microRNA that um, inhibited a tumor suppressor, so you have something like a MIR-21 or something like this inhibiting P10, then you could have the same kind of concept, right? Um, that, again, the aberrant loss of a tumor suppressor because you have activation of an oncogenic microRNA can promote a tumor suppressive state. But this, again, doesn't have to be a tumorgenic state. I'm just giving that as an example. It could be a, essentially any uh, disease process. Okay, so that's uh, a bit about the background. I'm going to try now to get involved a little bit in um, some of the techniques and kind of 
a big question, right? You know, so where do I begin? You know, I'm somebody who works on protein X. Uh, I want to know, you know, if microRNAs are important in my system. So usually, you know, I try to group this into a forward genetic approach versus a reverse genetic approach. I guess you can do this with any system. Um, scheme one is kind of laid out as, I guess, a forward genetic. So essentially, you did a big profiling experiment. You can do this by a micro RNA, micro array. <laughs> you can do this by small RNA sequencing. Um, and there's many other techniques as well. And then you do this maybe normal versus tumor or some disease state versus normal or treated cells with a drug and you have a vehicle control, whatever it may be. You do the profiling, you find a bunch of microRNAs that change upon your treatment, and then you have to do the hard task of identifying and validating your candidates and then move on to some functional experiments. The other approach could be the reverse genetics, I guess, where it's more, maybe it's bioinformatic, maybe it's, um, you already have a phenotype, right? So you're now asking the question, I have one particular gene, I know it promotes something like aberrant cell growth. And now I want to know which microRNAs are interacting with my gene, or maybe you already know a microRNA does something and you want to know what genes are regulated by that microRNA. That's sort of a reverse genetics approach. You kind of already know your phenotype-ish, and now you're just trying to ask um, what's the upstream regulators. Uh, there, you know, it could be a little bit easier, but I mean, you still have to then go and screen for the expression of your microRNAs to see if they're even present in your cell, um, and if they inversely correlate with the mRNA of your target gene. Um, and then eventually you'll still have to go back to scheme one. I mean, these are not separate approaches. It's just how you enter into the system. If you start with scheme two, you eventually will have to do scheme one to some extent and vice versa. And then overall, I think what's really important is you, you know, if somebody's not used to working with RNA, you do have to be a little bit more careful. I mean, RNA has some of its own intricacies and um, it's really important to know a little bit about RNA biochemistry, and um, it, it, you know, and, and you still have to do a, a lot of validation experiments. Um, so that's kind of the roadmap, um, depending on which you know angle you're coming from. Uh, if you look at approach number one, I mean, we do this all the time. I've already shown this data. It's kind of more intuitive for for many investigators because they may have already just done something like this where they've done a microRNA, microarray. Um, I will mention that you can, if you have some computational experience, uh, TCGA, the, the, the Cancer Genome Atlas, um, they, they do have microRNA sequencing data, uh, depending on which cancer type you're looking at. Uh, so you can mine that database too. And you can just run some R programs and some scripts, and then you can essentially get heat maps like this that just show Again, the differential expression of some microRNAs in either cancer or, or any of your systems. I'm not going to spend too much on sort of the techniques about how you run something like a microarray. I think that's kind of straightforward, depending on which company you, you use. <clears throat> um, I just wanted to highlight that there are, again, these multiple types of profiling platforms. And... Uh, for a microarray, it's usually 
I think a lot of investigators do like this just in the sense that it tends to be a little bit more cost effective, but obviously the disadvantage is that you're only looking at RNA species that you have probes that are designed for already pre-designed. So um, the, it's sort of a hybrid between discovery and validation uh, platform. Uh, deep seek, or I shouldn't call it anymore. Uh, we should just call it RNA sequencing or small RNA sequencing for the, for the microRNA at least. Um, it's obviously a, much more of a discovery platform. The downfalls can be uh, a little bit expensive, uh, and you have to be able to know how to analyze your data and process that data. And then, of course, probably the most uh, gold standard way of uh, any kind of validation, anyway, of course, uh, experiment is a, is a qPCR uh, array or just a qPCR experiment. And uh, I'll probably go into a little bit of the details of the real time PCR because, again, you will ultimately always be validating any of your approaches through qPCR. I just wanted to highlight some other technologies. There's Firefly, there's Nanostring, there's other biochemical approaches that people use to identify. Um, it's a different question. It's not necessarily profiling. It's, it's more uh, understanding if your microRNA associates with a particular mRNA. So essentially you will take cells and you will cross-link them and um, you will, you will We'll pull down something like Ego and then see what kind of RNAs are bound to that uh, that pull down. That is a very biochemistry heavy approach. If anybody's just starting to get into the microRNA field, I probably wouldn't recommend that. Um, and I, I would actually recommend to, to do some kind of small RNA sequencing experiment. If you don't feel comfortable with that, nanostring is pretty good, I guess. You can do something like 800 microRNAs. Uh, microRNA microarrays are pretty good. And then Firefly is pretty good because it's a panel of 60 to 65 uh, microRNAs, but you could do this on uh, hundreds of samples in, in, in one go. So there's sort of a, a trade off for a lot of these technologies, but there's also a lot of advantages to these technologies. Um, so I just have highlighted in red, you know, those, are the, those technologies highlighted in red are essentially more validation and the ones in blue are more discovery approaches. So um, I just, again, wanted to highlight what's out there for um, validation technologies, for qPCR, for microRNA specifically. Um, I think the two main systems really are still Kyogen versus TACMAN. Um, the Kyogen has its own uniqueness to it in the sense that um, it was one of the first technologies where you could actually have a universal RT system and, and, and actually you could look at mRNA and microRNA in the same system, the same RT, depending on how you did those reactions. They've, so the, the thing that they do is they polyadenylate all RNA species and mm -hmm. they essentially, um, in the RT step, have an oligo DT primer with a universal tag and then you do your RT reaction. And then essentially you have a, a microRNA qPCR where the five prime primer is unique to the microRNA, and then you have a universal primer that recognizes this tag. Um, it's pretty good. It's pretty robust. It, it does give you a lot of information. Um, and they've worked on the system a lot to give some specificity, so that's really good. Some prefer still to do TACMAN. That's fine too. It's whatever makes you feel, uh, whatever's 
comfortable for anybody. Um, Tacman has a different approach. They for their microRNA, they use a stem loop RT primer, kind of locks confirmation to give some specificity. You do your PCR, and then on top of this, you have a when you do your PCR, you have your forward and your reverse primer, but also you have the addition of this um, floor that will only fluoresce when these, this reaction occurs. So um, added specificity, so that that's also very helpful and could be useful for uh, people. Um, there's, it's really, I would say, if you're interested in just like getting into the system, uh, try try both and, and kind of see what what you feel most comfortable with. Uh, from from my own work, we kind of uh, I've had some experience with Kyogen. We've utilized some of the technology. Um, what I'm showing here is data on the so essentially on the left. Um, profiling MIR-34A across uh, different uh, breast cancer cell lines. Um, so essentially, in, well, in, actually breast lines as well. So in gray are all the normal lines that we looked at. We have some conditionally reprogrammed cells, HMEX, 10As, um, luminal breast cancer lines, and a panel of triple negative breast cancer cell lines. And we saw that MIR-34 is... Uh, as the microarray data showed that MIR-34 is lowly expressed in the basal slash triple negative lines compared to normal or luminal. Um, off to the right is uh, um, from a study that's just been published in Oncogene. We looked for uh, the expression of MIR-125 in a panel of, 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 the, of those same lines. And by and large, we also find that to be a microarray to be uh, lowly expressed in, in a lot of breast cancer lines. And then, um, you know, it's not just a steady state. We can actually look at microRNA levels under different conditions. So on the bottom here, we're showing data where um, if you treat some of these cells with gamma radiation, you can see the loss of expression of some microRNAs, in this case, MIR-125B. Um, and that that's kind of interesting. Uh, for lots of different reasons. Uh, I will actually talk about this a little later on, that 125B seems to be a radio sensitizer. Um, but this is all done with the uh, Kyogen platform. Um, it's not to say that other platforms um, are not just as effective. Um, so before you even get to that point, there, I, I put this up there because I know this webinar will be available to, to, to people later on. So this is kind of just um, points to touch upon about how you get your RNA first. Um, maybe some people don't feel comfortable um, with uh, working with RNA. Uh, so there's really two main methods. Um, the first is a phenylchloroform approach. Uh, that's really been the tried and true for a very long time to, to, do, to do sort of the organic uh, phase extraction. A lot, of, a lot of people don't like to do this because phenol, can, you know, it's, it's toxic and um, uh, it, it can be hazardous. Um, but it does do a really good job of cleaning up uh, and getting rid of a lot of the protein that may be in your cell extract. So it's still a good standard to use, I think. Um, but the, there are some challenges. You know, there's a lot of steps where there, there's some variation that could occur. Uh, you know, maybe somebody puts a little bit different amount of alcohol in there when they 
do the precipitation procedures, and those things can get a little um, annoying to work with. And uh, what that actually ends up happening, what that leads to actually, is uh, variable results because you actually can can get different RNA species um, precipitated out at different times. Um, and that changes your abundance slightly. It may not be such a big deal if you're doing something in cell culture, because eventually when you do the qPCR, you will always have something to normalize to. But if you're doing something, let's say, from a circulating biosource like a serum, and you don't have much to normalize to, this becomes a challenge when you have a lot of variation in the isolation procedure for your RNA. Um, so. There has been a push to use silica-based columns, and in by and large, that's fine to use. Um, In general, it doesn't result too much in low yields. I think multiple companies have worked on that a bit. Um, Usually, you still have to do uh, a phenochloroform extraction. It's probably still the best way to go, and then you can... Uh, do some steps to then get that extract onto the column and then um, elude it in some buffer. Do all the washes there. Treat uh, your, 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 your lysates with DNAs and do all that kind of stuff. And then you can wash everything off the column and, uh, and then just elude your RNA uh, as well. And so that does take a lot of variation in terms of like, alcohol precipitation and getting different RNA species takes that all out of the mix. So that is quite helpful. And But I will say that I, I still think you're never going to get away from phenylchloroform extraction. Um, that's actually kind of important because this is just an example of something that uh, you could do to say, okay, well, did I get a good amount of RNA out of my extract? Um, and, and so this brings up this issue of quality control and quantification. And everybody goes to the spec. And spec, uh, in this case here, a nanodrop, probably everybody's first choice. <laughs> um, and there's some things you can actually know from a nanodrop result um, besides just the abundance of your RNA. Um, one thing you could tell is uh, really if there's any kind of contamination in your uh, isolation. Uh, in, in your in your prep, basically. Um, sorry, this is actually shown as DNA. I didn't know that. But essentially, this is a curve. It would look the same if it was on, under RNA. You have a nice peak at 260. There's nothing really at 280 or at 230. So essentially, it means good amount of RNA, not much protein, and not really any organic or uh, something like phenol or, or any ethanol that's left over in the system. Um, off to the right is something that you know had a little bit of phenol carryover, so you get this kind of spike at the at the 280. It, you're trying to it, there's some RNA in there, uh, so you do get a little bump there for 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 your uh, spec analysis, and then you have a huge peak at 230 because there's there's phenol in there, there's some ethanol in there. The problem is that you have that contaminant, so you have to deal with it. And the second thing is that it's now overestimating the abundance of your RNA. So you'll probably have to take... So that's actually a good first step, is if you, if you see something like that, you probably will have to rerun that over a column uh, just to kind of clean everything up. 
And uh, that's actually really important too, because if you use this RNA for something like a deep sequencing experiment, uh, I guarantee you, you're going to get some really bad results. So that's, that's the first step uh, for checking your RNA preps. The second thing, I don't have it, I don't think I have it listed here, but we can, I can leave this up here for this. But the second thing also is that if you suspect something else is going on with RNA for whatever reason, low yields or whatnot, it's very cheap nowadays to run a bioanalyzer analysis and just see if your RNA is degraded. I mean, this is always a problem. We've had, um, I mean, RNA is, is even though I've, I've said that microRNAs are stable, um, you know, there's still RNA, and RNAs is everywhere. Um, and, and so you still have to wipe down your pipette and, and your bench tops, anything you can with something like RNA zap or RNA away. Essentially, it's just sodium pipette. Um, um, sorry. Uh, yeah, it, 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 uh, hydrogen peroxide with some detergent. So uh, it's actually a, a good thing to, to keep everything clean. Um, and then, you know, remove DNA contaminants as well because they can carry some things in there. So, I mean, I think overall the idea is just to be very careful and clean and always check and kind of, it's okay to be a little overly careful with RNA. I, I, I don't think, I think it hurts you more to be not as careful because it could be result in mislead, mis, ah, the results being misled a little bit. Okay, so that's how you basically handle RNA. I've talked about that in previous webinars. Now the thing is, maybe you're not starting there. Right? You're going to get to that later. Maybe you're starting from a different approach, which is you essentially already know some microRNAs are important in your system and you want to know what genes they regulate or you're particularly particularly interested in one particular gene that's all you care about and you want to know if microRNA regulates it so the good thing that we do have um and it comes with a there's always a curse and a blessing to everything um but the thing we do have in this field is we, we do have prediction algorithms and there's a plethora of them and they all have a little bit of uh different approach on how to do this, but essentially they still work on the concept of Watson and Crick base pairing, and for the most part, seed interaction, seed, sorry, seed interaction. So essentially, I think really target scan is the one that really has predominated in this regard, but essentially the concept is every microRNA uh, if you look from it, if you can just imagine from its five prime end, to its three prime end, you have 22 nucleotides. So nucleotides two through eight are considered the seed. And the more complement that is to any cognate RNA target, the better interaction you have, and therefore the better effect or function the microRNA presumably should have on your RNA target. So that's one that's that's a model. And that model has been approved upon a little bit in terms of um, which base is in which position or if it's paired or if it's not paired. And that brings up this notion, if you're looking target scan, um, of context score. And, um, and also the other filter has really been whether or not the, not necessarily that the microRNA itself is conserved, but whether the target site is conserved. So if you find 
this, for instance, rear 27 on buck 19, whatever, uh, on this, if you find that binding happening, not just in humans, but you find this interaction in lower organisms as well, the argument is that it may be a, a truer uh, microRNA mRNA interaction. So, something like target scan and other prediction algorithms that do this kind of stuff is really good. Um, they give us a, almost any, the potential for any interaction. So, false negatives probably not going to happen. They'll probably give false positives only in the sense that. When you do these computational models, it's very hard to do things in cell context. So it may just be that, for instance, this particular microRNA, or 27, may interact with buck 19 but maybe this microRNA is not expressed in your cell. Um, so essentially, may not be relevant, this, this interaction in your system. It doesn't mean it doesn't play a role in some other investigative system. Um, so that's the thing. You, you kind of have to mine these databases and, you know, you can't just, so, so I guess mere 10, if you look at, if you look at it from your 10's perspective, the, the best interaction is Mach 19. If you look at it from Mach 19 perspective, some of the best interactions are these micronates listed here. So it's just how you look at the data, how you look at the algorithms, and then you almost have to just pick, you know, um, a handful of these and then still have to do qPCR experiments and show number one that your microRNA is expressed in your cells and that your uh, target gene is expressed obviously, but also that the two are inversely correlated with one another across many different cell types. But ultimately, no matter which approach you use, whether you start from the profiling and then you identify some gene targets or you do the bioinformatic approach, do the gene targeting that way, you still have to prove that your microRNA interacts with your gene target, right? So the best way to do this really is through luciferase assays. And here is just a schematic of what's essentially being done here. You can have a luciferase gene. It, when, you, when you run a luciferase assay, right, this is an enzyme. So it cleaves a substrate when you add it to cell, the cell lysate and it emits light. Um, and what you could do is take any gene, hopefully, take its 3' UTR and put it behind luciferase and then ask, well, what is the amount of light that's made from this interaction? And then you could actually add in microRNAs to the cell and see if you basically make uh light or you don't and it, it, essentially if the microRNA is interacting with the 3' UTR that you cloned in it would recruit risk and block this RNA from being made into protein so you basically are not making luciferase and you don't make the sub, uh, you, you basically don't make any light in the assay um, so that would be how you test that you can go one step further and start mutating some of these sites to show that they are indeed uh, uh, micro the specific microRNA Binding sites that you think they are, but the, so that's what I'm saying. Essentially, you do have to take some biochemical approach to validate a microRNA mRNA target interaction. Um, we kind of well, we did do this for uh, the paper we published at Cancer Research with 34 showed that it targets the proto oncogene SARC, 
and predominantly does this in mesenchymal TMBC cells. So essentially, you're looking at the SARP 3' UTR, and here you see that we use three different prediction algorithms. Um, and uh, essentially, there is what, what I'm essentially just showing there is just all of the different binding sites for each of the algorithms, and then what the binding sites actually look like. So this site here seems to be a little bit weaker of a site because it just has the seed pairing. So here's the micronate going five prime, three prime this direction, and then, I'm sorry, micronate this way, and then the target this way. Um, so, so, right, yeah, five prime this way. So essentially this site seems to be the best because this is five prime micronate this way, this is the target gene. Um, and then you see all of this Watson and Crick base pairing happening, not on the, not just on the five prime end, but also on, a little bit on the three prime end and some in the middle. And then what's really important is that some, um, when you, when you do the luciferase assay, so we essentially can take, um, the UTR construct, the luciferase construct without any UTR, and we transfect the cells with low amounts of mirror 34, we don't see a repression of luciferase activity. When you utilize uh, a, a UTR construct that has the SARC 3' UTR, um, and then you add in the microRNA, you see repression of luciferase activity. So that was kind of nice. When we, it was very interesting, is that um, I'm not showing this here, MIR-34 and SARC seem to be operating in a feedback loop. So when you treat the cells with the satinib and you inhibit SARC, you actually get more MIR-34. And then we show that that MIR-34 is active because we use the wild-type MIR-34 sensor, which in this case has a, it doesn't have SARC, it has a three prime, has a um, anti-sense sequence to MIR-34. And when you add in uh, the satinib, you increase the levels of MIR-34, and then you have decreased activity of the sensor construct because there's more MIR-34 that's actually binding to the anti-sense sequence behind luciferase. So that's actually how powerful um, luciferase assays can be. Um, and I do encourage anybody getting involved in the microRNA field that you're going to have to learn how to do these kind of approaches. Um, we, and, 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 well, this is just data showing, again, um, from bioinformatic approach, how I think that it can help you. So with the MIR-125 story that we published in Oncogene, showing that it interacts with June and, and C. elegans, but also in humans. But essentially that was found through bioinformatic prediction softwares. So in, in C. elegans, there's a target scan, there's a Miranda, and there's a mirror whip program. And we can find potential interactions of, in this case, mirror 237, which is the homolog of mirror 125, um, and then correlate that or, or transpose that into the human system and see of all of those mirror 237 targets or mirror 125 targets. Um, how does that interact with the particular phenotype we were interested in, which was radiation response? They found June 1, and then um, this is just showing that worms that overexpress MIR-237 have lower levels of June, um, and when you have a knockout model of MIR-237, you essentially have more June uh, mRNA. 
um, in the interest of time, I'll kind of move on a little bit because I think everybody now wants to know a little bit about the functional validation. So essentially, is my microRNA important? And this is set up in the context of, again, cancer, but it could be for any state of disease. Essentially, you have a apparently expressed microRNA. They could be oncogenic microRNAs. They're highly expressed. And then you're, and, and they're basically targeting tumor suppressors. So essentially here, you'd want to develop an anti-mirror strategy to block those microRNAs, to block tumor genesis. And then on this arm, of course, you could have microRNAs that are lost, and it could be potentially tumor suppressive because they're targeting oncogenes. And then essentially, you would want to reintroduce those microRNAs to, again, block tumorigenic processes. Um, this is just a slide trying to show essentially different ways of delivering RNA into cells. So, it's, I mean, this is kind of a bad way of showing it, but essentially there's, there's one way where you don't have to do a virus. You could do, the standard way is actually just a lipid particle. You have a cationic lipid that's positively charged that will bind RNA that's negatively charged, and the lipid can then carry the uh, RNA through the cell membrane, and then the RNA does its job. Just like you would for a DNA plasmid, you do the same thing for RNA. And a lot of work's been done by that, and I can show that in the next couple of slides that we did predominantly that work uh, with MIR-34 and 125 using lipid transfection uh, methods. Um, when you start talking about vivo or trying to create stable lines that may, uh, you may want to create stable lines that express your microRNA, that gets you into the world of retroviral and lentiviral vectors. And so um, that, you know, you have to learn how to make uh, viral preps, but essentially you could, just like you would for any other gene, um, if you wanted to make a stable line, uh, you could do the same thing for a microRNA, have constructs available to do that kind of work. Um, and that's not terribly difficult to do nowadays. This is work that was just, again, in the 2015 cancer research paper that we did utilizing uh, a MIR-34 mimic that was coupled with a, 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 just a lipid particle. And we can just transfect that into cells. And we saw that MIR-34 was uh, inhibiting tumor growth, uh, predominantly in triple negative cells, but not in the luminal-like cells that the panel showed, shown to the right here. Um, predominantly what MIR-34 does is it um, promotes senescence. And, um, um, and that's shown in both a do dose and time-dependent manner. Uh, again, same kind of experiment with uh, just transfecting breast cancer cells with MIR-125. Uh, what we actually saw was that it sensitizes these cells to gamma radiation. So the, the panel um, on the left over here is... Are, are, this is a particularly 231 cells that have been transfected with MIR-125. By itself, doesn't seem to do any damage in terms of uh, senescence or anything like that compared to a scrambled control mimic. Um, and then when you, but, but essentially when you add on top of it, or, uh, so they've been pre-treated with MIR-125, and then when you add on top of it uh, gamma radiation, you can see the emergence of all these blue cells on beta-gal staining. So these cells are undergoing senescence. We've seen that. Uh, so this is also a dose in a time-dependent manner. Um, 
the quantifications uh, uh, shown here. From uh, this is two thirty one cells, and then on the bottom we've shown this also with MCF seven cells. Um, but I think ultimately, if you're going to do, again do functional experiments um, and show that your microRNA is important uh, for a particular phenotype or particular function, whatever it may be, I think you have to do a rescue experiment. And there's many different ways to do rescue experiments, but the, com the common one essentially is to do an ORF rescue. So essentially, you express, um, in this case, a SARC per, uh, oncogene that doesn't have the 3' UTR, so the microRNA can't regulate it, and then you can do any kind of assay you would like. I think the best one to show here is from panel D, you, we did something for an invasion assay. MIR-34 basically prevents cells from invading, but then when cells express the SARC-ORF and then you put MIR-34 on top of it, you essentially block that function. Um, so that tells you that, again, that the phenotype is linked, should be linked to your microRNA gene target of interest. And I think um, in the interest of time, I'll probably skip over most of this, but we're, I think we're I think we can have a couple more minutes. Um, we've shown this with MIR-125 as well. I showed you that MIR-125 was actually lowly expressed in 231 cells, and they become even more lowly expressed when they're uh, treated with gamma radiation. But what's interesting is that June levels were increased um, uh, during gamma radiation. So, the, again, the microRNA and the target are inversely correlated under its particular condition. But what we show is that when you overexpress June, again, through this ORF system, um, we can actually protect the cells from gamma radiation. And then this is, the, this is really the rescue experiment where um, if the black line here is GFP control and the gray line here is when you treat with MIR-125B, you can actually sensitize cells. And then the, the hashed or the dotted gray line, it, so the black line is... Um, is the again the ORF for June, which again protects the cells from gamma radiation. But when you put MIR 125B on top of it, you don't really get any more. I mean, you still have protection. So again, um, MIR 125B can't regulate June, and essentially you rescued your phenotype. Um, so those are kind of the cool experiments you can do at the functional level to show um, again that you're your microRNA gene interaction is important in your system. I just wanted to, um, I, okay, so, uh, I, well, one thing, and I already mentioned this, um, mm -hmm. you really can go and mine TCGA. It's a really good resource. If you have some computational skills or nobody know somebody who can, you can pull out the microRNA-seq data, as I'm kind of hovering over it with my arrow right here, um, and every system has different number of cases and different um, ways that RNA has been handled, but it's, it could be a good first source if you want to know if your microRNA is relevant in a cancer system. We've shown this with MIR-34. Um, we were able to look into the TCGA that's being shown over on the right here, um, that if patients highly express MIR-34, particularly triple negative breast cancer patients, they tend to do way better in terms of overall survival as compared to mm -hmm. patients with low MIR-34 levels. Uh, and then I think I'm going to wrap this up in two minutes if I still have time. Basically, the goal here is a therapeutic, if that's your goal. So, you know, in the C. elegans systems, it's really 
cool. It's part of the, this is part of the Mirror One Twenty Five paper. If you can o- develop a overexpression system or a knockout system and see an, an effect like this, this is pretty cool, right? So this is showing that Mirror Two Thirty Seven overexpressors in worms actually are sensitized to gamma radiation. Um, most are, I think, where the field is headed is developing um, delivery molecules or delivery entities to treat uh, cancer, right, or mm-hmm. any other disease. So in this case, with the MIR-34 paper, we were able to put in cancer cells, breast cancer cells, into the fat pads of nude mice. And then we were able to, through a chemistry that was developed through collaborators at Yale, um, this polycomine ester nanoparticle that you can couple to the microRNA, and you could deliver that systemically, and you could see tumor reduction at the mammary gland site when you deliver this uh, entity. Uh, and then we looked for levels of MIR-34 and the target RNA and did this whole, mm-hmm. whole great thing. Uh, and so that just shows you that there's some promise for at least the ability of delivering an RNA systemically and getting it to a particular tumor site. Um, and and um, it, companies are clearly already doing this. Mirax 34 is the, basically the first microRNA replacement therapy. Just finished phase one trials. We're excited to know what happens in phase two, um, or what the next phase, what the phase two will be. But there are other companies that are uh, developing anti-mirror strategies for different disease indications, and those will be highlighted uh, in some publications coming out soon. Um, here are some useful resources for anybody uh, about just profiling or some other questions you may have. And I think with that, since I'm probably over time, I'm just going to stop. And uh, if there's any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Thanks, Brian. That was an excellent presentation. Um, we have quite a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. To let everyone know, we will wrap up the presentation or wrap up the Q and A session at twelve fifteen um, on the East Coast, so fifteen after the hour. So our first question is from um, Kellen. And they ask, can you please comment on the best procedures for RNA isolation and quantification for low-yield samples, such as serum? Oh, so that's a good question. Um, the best, well, I would recommend that um, if you want to do RNA isolation from serum or anything like this, I mean, they're, they're going to be low-yield no matter what. but um, you're probably going to have to use some combination of a column to do a cleanup. So Kaijin has their own systems for that. They have a really good system for that. Um, we've toyed around with some technologies from other companies. Uh, we've used some stuff from Firefly. They have some things that are proprietary where they don't, like you could just give them crude extract. Um, but it's sort of, and, and, and I think Exacon, which um, is now part of a different thing, can uh, sort of the same thing. So th- they're, they're all one and the same. So some of those other companies can, uh, can actually uh, help you with that. So um, they're always developing new tools. But I still think for the, even though they're low yield, you'll still have to use a column to make sure it's clean. And I think you're, I would worry less about the yield than I would worry more about the contamination of protein, 
um, and other sources. So I, I would look, in this case, I might still look at uh, Kyogen and maybe some other companies right now. But, okay. Yeah. And then um, Lynn has a question asking about um, when you deliver microRNA, do you transfer, or sorry, do you transfect the premature uh, microRNA or the mature microRNA? Uh, normally the standard now is still the... Um, well, that depends. So if you, yeah, so if you want to reintroduce the microRNA, usually it's still a microRNA mimic. So it's still the mature microRNA. If it's um, if it's an inhibitor, which that that, that does exist, it's still a single-stranded antisense to the mature microRNA, presumably. I mean, the micro the mature form usually is more abundant than the precursors, but of course there are cases where you may want to target a precursor RNA, and those companies that make mimics and make antisense RNAs could probably make one custom uh, for you if you wanted to design one to a precursor, but usually it's to, to the mature microRNA. Okay. And then Emily asks, um, what could be some possible reasons for low expression of mature um, microRNAs after transfecting cells with them with a um, microRNA gene expression vector? Okay, so let me understand. So they are expressing a particular microRNA of interest, and then they come back and they don't see the expression of their Yeah, or it's low expression. So it seems like they've transfected their cells oh. with a... Um, oh microRNA expression vector, and then they get see low expression. Oh, they've transfected the vector. Hmm. Well, I, um, yeah, that's, I would say, well, that it could be the vector itself is not correct, or um, they should try their transfection protocol, maybe try the mimic, and just see if uh, they get gangbuster expression of um, of their microRNA of interest, so they can just weed out whether or not it's a transfection issue versus whether it's a vector issue, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yeah. and then um, Rich, I'm sorry, I'm going to horribly mingle your name. Um, Rituparna um, asks if there's any database like TCGA for other diseases apart from cancer. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm sure there are, but I, I cannot name them off the top of my head right now. I mean, there are, uh, there's things like, yeah, there's some, uh, well, it, I can look those up real quick or whatever, and I can answer that back off of, uh, off, uh, offline. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, yeah. If um, you want, if, I'm um, sorry, Perna, if you want to put, type in your email address into the questions box, I'll pass it along to Brian at the end or after the webinar. So we also have a question about, um, oh, this is interesting. So I cannot pronounce your name. I'm assuming it's Wanho. But um, they ask if it would be possible to isolate microRNAs with a chip strategy um, using the um, Argonaut Dicerter complex. Using a chip strategy. Um, so you would... So I think it would be, like, if you could, yeah, if you could do, maybe if you could pull down the microRNAs using yeah. the protein complex. Uh, so it's sort of like a, yeah, I know. Um, that's an interesting way to do that, I guess. Yeah, so you would essentially tether, I would probably do it, you have probes that recognize the microRNA. 
and, and or something like this, and then you would wash. You'd still have to do some cross-linking, but yeah, you could try to you can you can adapt clip to be on a chip if that's what they're asking. I mean, you could do something like that. Um, but the thing is, is that Ago Micronate Complex, you have you know it's stable, but it may not be that stable. So you probably will still have to do some other finicky things to make sure that you cap when, once that binding happens that you capture it right. But you should be able to do something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I know that I've had um, my lab mate when I was doing my postdoc. Um, they did something similar to that, where they used um, a pan um, argonaut antibody to pull down the complex. Okay. But there, it required a, it was pretty finicky. Yeah, I can imagine. That's yeah, clip and other derivatives of that technology. You have to be a really strong biochemist, I think, because there's there's a lot of there's just a lot of finicky steps, I feel like, and uh, yeah. It, uh, sorry that you, I mean, I hopefully that your lab mate was able to. to, <laughs> to yeah, work out it, to it, get was, it was a pain, she, but she got it eventually. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> so let's see. So we have um, we have several more questions. Um, so. Um, so could fluorescent RNA be used to detect potential microRNAs using fish? Well, you can use fish to detect, I mean, uh, to detect microRNA. I mean, um, that is, there, there's a, Exacon used to be like one of the leaders in that respect. I think there's another company, I don't think it's Cytoscape, but it's something else. Um, I can't remember right now. But I mean, fish is... I mean, so in situ is something that's been reported in the literature, and there's different tools to do that, and they use fluorescent probes. Um, just, you just you just have to be careful where you put the fluorescence, I think, because you don't want to disrupt the uh, interaction between the probe and the microRNA. But um, those techniques are out there. I'm pretty sure if you just do a Google search, they'll probably be a, the company I'm thinking of will probably pop up on the top search. But um, if the question is just, can you do it? Yeah, that's, that's been done. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, sorry. Is there, so this question is from uh, Marika. And they ask if there's an official consensus yet in the microarray community about normalization. Like, is there a reference mirror? A reference mirror? Well, it depends. So if you're looking in cells, usually the reference would be something like an RNU6B. You could even use a 5S RNA, some, something that's abundant but low in size that matches the expression of or the size, roughly the size of a microRNA. Uh, for serum or anything like that, there's no consensus on what's used for normalization yet. So. That's important. Yeah. Okay, and then um, Anna has a question about uh, measuring microRNA using qPCR. So, have you measured primary microRNA using qPCR? And if so, do you have any tips for um, implementing primary microRNA extraction? Um, so, some of those commercial sources that I talked about, you can detect primary. Um, some people in the field would still tell you that you might have to run a northern um, just to rule out. I mean, you shouldn't have a problem um, 
detecting pi, pi microRNA from mature. I mean, size is completely different, and you have your primers are flanking a different region. But I would say that if you're interested in sort of just dis- discerning between a mature versus a pre versus a pry, just conceptually, I'm just saying that you you may be locked into running a northern blot. And not too many people do northern blots nowadays, but you might still have to, you're going to have to do that because it's a size thing, right? So you're going to have to convince people that um, that you're detecting an abundance or a loss of something at the at that particular size of the RNA species. So yeah, yeah. And I didn't cover that. There's yeah, there's there's some protocols I think even back in Exicon days and some other protocols about how to do northerns for microns, but. I think that's the route she's going to have to go. <laughs> okay. Yes. And then we have, um, I think we have time for about maybe one or two more questions. So this is a question that's related to isolation and serum. So which is better for sequencing, isolating total RNA or using a small RNA isolation kit? Um, well, you're probably not going to get much. You're probably, mm, there's probably no difference, right? So I think you could just take total RNA because if you start doing extraction, like enrichments of things, you're probably just going to lose a lot of your RNA. And there's a lot of microRNA actually in the serum. So I don't think there's a need necessarily to enrich. Though if there's really an interest, there's, you can always do a side-by-side and see which one wins out. Yeah. Okay. And then our last question is from Terry, and they're asking if there's a platform that detects different levels of microRNA and mRNAs simultaneously, if you know of one. Like um, like a database that already has that data, or you want like a platform that you can you can just screen for a particular, like a qPCR platform? Um, I'm not sure. I'm guessing maybe a qPCR type platform. Well, for that, the, 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 as a, the only thing I've tested right now for that, which I mean, I'm pretty sure other companies are doing that now. It's fine, but the um, uh, the, the Kaijin system does work for both microRNA and and mRNA. Um, you just do use a slightly different buffer, and you're able to look at in the same RT reaction a microRNA and an mRNA. There's a little caveat to that. We can talk about offline, but you can you can do that. So okay. Um, so if you want, I lost the person who, um, answered, asked the question. So if they, um, if you type your email into the questions box, then I will go ahead and pass that on to Brian after the presentation. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of the presentation. So thank you, Brian. That was an excellent presentation and a wonderful discussion. Thank you. And thanks also to our sponsor, Kyogen. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you have enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There, you can also see the other webinars we have lined up for you in Bite Size Bio's webinar festival. So until next time, Good luck in your research, and goodbye from all of us at Kyogen and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com webinars.
finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. 